the broader storyline that we see ourselves set in. And so we looked at the biblical story in creation and fall and redemption and consummation and how it provides the lens that we use in approaching current subjects. And last week we saw God's plan for marriage and sexuality, this creational design that is affirmed in Genesis, confirmed by Jesus and witnessed throughout Scripture. We saw that the biblical message about homosexuality is clear and consistent. And we were given the scriptural data and attempted to respond to some some recent ways of trying to reinterpret Scripture's teaching there. But there are remaining practical questions and possible objections about this subject that need to be answered. And so that's what we hope to accomplish this morning. In your notes, you'll find 20 questions related to homosexuality and same-sex marriage that I hope to address in our time together. But here's the difficulty that we face this morning. We have the challenge of needing to respond to arguments while caring for the people behind the argument. Some people feel like to respond to an argument that a person makes is to attack the person making the argument. And that's really a reflection of, of our postmodern value system. Our culture seems unable to distinguish disagreeing with someone from hating someone. But let me be clear. Any abuse, verbal or physical, of any gay person is a sin against God. It is a denial of the image of God in man and an affront to our holy Lord. It really happens in this world and it is offensive not only to humanity but to God himself. We are not here to promote hate or violence of any sort. We are here to engage the culture redemptively. We are here to offer the hope of the gospel. We are here to respond with grace and compassion. But because we believe God's truth, that requires us to lovingly identify the need that the gospel addresses. I recently saw a funny YouTube video in which a wife was telling her husband about the relentless pressure that she's feeling in her head. And the husband points out the fact that she happens to have a nail coming out of her head. And she says, it is not about the nail. And he replies, are you, are you sure? Because uh, I bet if we got that out there, it would, it would really help. And she said, stop trying to fix it. You always do this. I just want you to understand how I'm feeling. It's a humorous illustration of the differences between men and women, but it also points to our role in the gospel conversation. Because we are those who need to say, there is a nail in your head, but I know someone who can take care of that. The problem is our culture denies the existence of the nail which means we are in the position of needing to address ideas. And so we cannot accept the standard that to disagree with someone is to hate them. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, We destroy arguments 
and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Some of the questions found in your notes are genuine questions that need an informed but compassionate answer. Others represent objections that need a well-reasoned response. And my hope is that both will be accomplished this morning. And we'll look at this under two headings. First, homosexuality, and the second, same-sex marriage. So, number one, God made a helper fit for Adam and created Eve. But what if I'm a man and I feel like the helper fit for me is another man or a woman for a woman? Well, in Genesis, it is God who says it is not right for Adam to be alone and who determines to make a helper suitable for him. It was not Adam who discovered his loneliness and sought out a helper who corresponded to his feelings. It was the Lord who put Adam in a deep sleep and formed the woman and brought her to him as the one designed for him. And we've seen that this text is not just telling us about this particular situation, but clearly communicating God's plan for marriage and sexuality for all people. This does not mean that everyone will get married. Singleness is not only inappropriate, but an exalted status in Scripture. But anyone who does pursue marriage is to do so according to God's creational design. In this, like in everything else, we need to bring our feelings into conformity to God's Word. You know, the man who feels like he comes alive with that married woman over there, that she is the one who completes him, needs to bring his feelings into submission to what is right. And so it's not just those who experience same-sex attraction who find themselves needing to walk the difficult path of what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, although they do experience a unique kind of temptation. Number two, if homosexuality is genetically determined, how can it be wrong? Well, science tells us, or at least promises to tell us, about the way the world is. It doesn't tell us about the way the world ought to be. In other words, we cannot derive moral judgments from science alone. It's not the kind of knowledge that science seeks to address or is able to deliver. And for example, a couple of weeks ago we had mentioned the discussion about Plan B or the morning after pill and whether or not it should be given to girls as young as 10 or 11 without parental consent or a doctor's prescription. But in that discussion, Judge Corman argued that it was, quote, unscientific to restrict access to the pill. Of course, this is just silly. It's not a scientific question, but a moral question with policy implications. The problem is that when we try to cut off the moral conversation because of what science has supposedly shown us, we not only trim the edges of certain values, but we eliminate moral discourse altogether. This is the problem with biological determinism. If my choices and actions are merely and conclusively the product of my biology, and if this eliminates the ability to morally evaluate who I am and what I've done 
because that is biologically determined, then by definition, I can never do anything that is right or wrong. And on top of this, whatever beliefs and convictions I hold to are simply the result of my genetic and evolutionary history. To illustrate this point, Catherine Stewart, writing for The Guardian, actually argues this. Listen to what she says. We persist, however, in seeing religious belief in religious terms. Now you wonder what's wrong with that. Well, listen to what she says. That is simply a matter of moral choice. God has given us His Word, the common thinking goes, and we can choose to believe it or not, just as we can choose what color of socks to wear or whether to rob a bank today. But belief isn't simply a matter of choice. Some people seem born to believe or are born in contexts where non-belief is highly unlikely. Others come into the world with no interest in religion at all or come to the realization that the religious beliefs to which they were exposed simply do not make sense to them. Most non-believers I know don't have the option of believing in a deity or deities any more than they have the option of believing that grasshoppers can speak. What Stuart is arguing for here is that there is a religious orientation that we are born with. But if my religious inclination is simply the product of my genetics, then I'm just born with the belief that homosexuality is sin. But if I'm born that way, can anyone call me wrong for holding this perspective? You see, this kind of thinking collapses on itself. That's all to say that even if it were conclusively proven that homosexuality is genetically determined, that would not eliminate the moral question. But that day has yet to come. The case simply hasn't been made. While you'll get the opposite impression from the media, there has not been a single scientific study that has conclusively shown a causal link between genetics and so-called homosexual orientation. The major studies that have been cited in the past have either given results that contradicted this hypothesis or have been shown to involve researcher bias or faulty research methodology. For example, one study surveyed the presence of homosexuality among identical twins. Identical twins are a perfect genetic match. They have the same DNA. And this study reported that of 56 homosexual men who were identical twins, 52%, that is 29, had a twin brother who was also homosexual. Now, even with that high of a figure, 52%, we have a problem. Because if homosexuality has a purely genetic cause, there should be a 100% rate among identical twins since they have the same genes. But even these numbers were inflated because of sampling bias. Volunteers were recruited through advertisements and gay publications, making it likely that the test groups would have an artificially high number of homosexual twins whose co-twins were also homosexual. A similar British study that did not have the same flawed research methodology gave significantly lower figures. But even excluding that consideration, the study is inconsequential. 
As Ed Welch notes, identical twins typically have a profound influence on each other. If one twin is introduced to something new, it is likely that he will introduce the other twin to that activity. The study did not include twins who were separated at birth. Moreover, the results also showed that genetically unrelated adopted brothers of homosexuals had an allegedly high rate of homosexuality, although such adopted brothers have no shared genetic history. And Welch concludes, the researchers realize that all they have proven is that homosexuality is not caused solely by genetics. There are at least social and environmental influences as well. But genetic history is a contributing factor to all of our weaknesses. We had a hot-headed father, and so our temperament and makeup tempts us toward anger, but it is never the only factor present. And even with all of these considerations, they may tempt us to sin, but they cannot make us sin. And that much is clear from Scripture. Number three, if God made everything and everyone, then He made gay people. So why would he make some people gay if he didn't want them to fulfill their desires? What this question does is borrow part of the Christian storyline, but it ignores an important chapter of that story. It is true that God is the creator of all things. In fact, we are told that he made everything good. He established his intentions in creation and he declared the result to be good. But there is more to the story. There is creation, and then there is the fall. We live in a fallen world. We have fallen bodies and souls. We have fallen desires and ideas and impulses. Every single one of us. We are not today what we were meant to be. But through Christ, the Lord is making all things new. So we cannot equate any person with the fallen version of that person. We cannot attribute the way we are as simply the way that God has made us and take away any moral evaluation of that. Otherwise, liars and gossips and adulterers can all apply the language of this is how God made me and escape accountability. Well, then why would God allow homosexuality to exist in His world? Well, that is a great question, but it is really a much bigger question. It addresses more than the subject of homosexuality. It's really the question of what is called theodicy. Why would God allow any sin to enter the world? That's a question we don't have time to answer in detail this morning, but the short answer is that any evil that exists is for His wise and redemptive purposes. If the Christian story is true, then God has good reasons for allowing sin to be present for a time until He defeats evil once and for all. Now, that might not make us comfortable, but the alternative is much worse. Because if the Christian story isn't true, then nothing in the world can be called evil. And our suffering and pain are without hope. Number four, If homosexuality is sin, then why isn't it wrong to wear shirts with different kinds of threads? 
or plant different seeds in the same garden? Isn't that inconsistent? Well, I tried to answer this question when we looked at the Leviticus passages last week, but the short answer, as Tim Keller noted in a, a popular article on this subject, is because Jesus is the Son of God. This, again, is a matter of whether or not the Christian story is true. In other words, if, as Christians believe, Jesus is the goal that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament pointed to, laws related to the sacrificial system and Israel's unique role in redemptive history, if Jesus has fulfilled them in His person and work, then it is not inconsistent for us to no longer practice them. This is not a matter of Christians picking and choosing what they will believe in the Bible, but of Christians allowing the Bible to interpret itself. And when we allow Scripture to guide us in our interpretation of, us, of it, we find that the Levitical law contains commandments to care for the elderly, to love one's neighbor as oneself, to provide for the poor, and so on. Laws that express God's moral character and His precepts for humanity for all time. The prohibition of homosexuality, which is explicitly carried over into the New Testament, is one of these. Number five, weren't David and Jonathan gay lovers? How many of you guys have encountered this one before? You've, you've heard this argument, a few of us. There's an interesting article written by Anthony Esselin titled, A Requiem of Friendship, Why Boys Will Not Be Boys and Other Consequences of the Sexual Revolution. And in it, he talks about the death of male friendship that modern sexual confusion has caused. He begins his essay by describing a scene from The Lord of the Rings in which Sam Gamgee finds his friend Frodo lying in a cell near Mordor, half conscious. And Frodo embraces him and Sam eventually cradles his head. And Esalen notes that today's viewers are likely to respond by saying, what? Are they gay? He gives a similar example from the life of Abraham Lincoln. And Esalen argues that the sexual revolution has caused us to sexualize these kind of deep bonding male-to-male relationships so that we've witnessed the death of male friendship. And that's what we find happening in the way that David and Jonathan have been interpreted recently. When David says that, of, he says of Jonathan that his love was more wonderful to him than the love of women, today people snicker and present this as evidence of the Bible supposedly promoting homosexual relationships. Of course, nothing in the text gives any indication that this is the way the narrator intends for us to understand this. But even if that's what's being communicated, it doesn't get us very far since we are also told that David was an adulterer and a murderer. So clearly, simply because a biblical character pursued a particular activity, it does not become right in the biblical viewpoint. So to answer the question, there is no reason to believe that David and Jonathan were gay lovers. But if there were, if they were, it simply is one more example in the Bible of the fallen sexuality that we all experience and find ourselves in need of redemption. In other words, the premise is false. But even if we grant the premise, the conclusion doesn't follow. Number six, 
Can someone be a gay Christian? Well, in responding to Jason Collins coming out of the closet while maintaining his Christian religious identity, Chris Broussard created a controversy when he commented, quote, If you're openly living in unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, I believe that's walking in open rebellion to God and to Jesus Christ, end quote. Of course, that is neither controversial nor newsworthy because it is the Christian position for the past 2,000 plus years. Paul writes Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. The attitude of faith affirms the lordship of Christ, which means you come into agreement with what the Lord says is right for your life. This is what it means to be a Christian. It involves faith and repentance. So understood this way, it makes no more sense to refer to a gay Christian than it does an idolatrous Christian or a Christian drunkard or any of the other things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, such were some of you. We are not to be fundamentally identified with any of these things. We have renounced them to serve Jesus as Lord. But if the question is, can someone who has pursued a homosexual lifestyle be forgiven of their sin and become a Christian, then absolutely for that itself is the Christian gospel. Or if the question is asking if a genuine Christian can experience same-sex attraction, then of course, since we are all tempted in many ways. If the question is, can a Christian fall into homosexual sin but repent and experience restoration, then yes, since the righteous one falls seven times and gets back up again. This is how William Arnott helpfully describes it. He says, the difference between an unconverted and a converted person is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. The problem is, though I don't know his heart, it appears from his public statements that Jason Collins has not sided with God against his sin, but sided with his sin against God. And that is the issue. Number seven, is homosexual orientation a choice? Well, the Bible doesn't explicitly have a category for homosexual orientation, and there are there are problems with the way that the secular world defines, <clears throat> defines that phrase today. But Scripture does have a category for weakness and temptation. When we use biblical language, we can answer these questions from the Bible. Did anyone here choose your weaknesses? <laughs> Did you choose how you would experience temptation? Certainly we can make unwise choices that, <clears throat> that place us in situations of increased temptation, but generally we've made no conscious choice about how we will be tempted in this life. Weakness and temptation come to us. They are presented to us. But we do choose how we will respond to them. Giving in to sin is a choice. 
And it's one that we are commanded not to make. And by the power of the Holy Spirit enabled to resist. Number eight, is it possible for someone's sexual orientation to change? Yes. If that means that someone will have decreasing attraction to the same sex and increasing attraction to the opposite sex, there are many Many individuals who have struggled with homosexual attraction or engaged in past activity who are now happily married with children. It doesn't mean they no longer experience any temptation, but not only have they chosen to walk in obedience, but they have received grace from God to experience the joys of God's design for marriage and sexuality. Of course, if you only pay attention to the media, then such people do not exist There's only one group that homosexual activists are more hateful toward than people who believe homosexuality is sin, and that is so-called ex-gays. It is argued that these people are either liars or are self-deceived. You know, they say, we know this is true because gay people do not change. Well, what about these gay people over here who have changed? Well, that's not contrary evidence because such people cannot exist since we know gay people never change. It's a wonderfully circular argument, but it isn't accurate or honest. I'm not saying that everyone who walks in repentance will be attended by an attraction to the opposite sex. We'll see that in a question in a moment, but I am saying that this has been the experience of many. And their testimonies are readily available. For one example, in a recent sermon, I'd mentioned Rosaria Champagne Butterfield's book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And Rosaria was a, a lesbian English professor who focused on feminist studies, but who encountered Jesus Christ and is now a believer and is, is married to a Reformed pastor. And her, her story is very edifying. I'd encourage you to, to read that. Number nine, what do you think about reparative therapy? Well, this is one of those phrases that is thrown about in the cultural conversation but often lacks clear definition. Homosexuality was once listed as a psychiatric disorder by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It was removed in 1973 for political reasons. But this puts things in perspective because if homosexuality was considered to be a disordered sexuality, then naturally psychologists would attempt to address it. And so various religious and secular organizations developed therapies for changing homosexual desire and behavior. I think that some forms of reparative therapy are wrong-headed and sinful, such as showing patients heterosexual porn to stimulate arousal. Fallen sexuality does not cure fallen sexuality. Only the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit ministered through the body of Christ accomplishes lasting change. But here's the translation that needs to happen as we engage the culture because some of the things that are labeled reparative therapy by the secular world are simply the means of grace we find in the rest of Christian ministry. Counseling and prayer and the preaching of the word. For those who label 
reparative therapy, the Christian belief that homosexual lust and activity are sin and that it is to be repented of and that God is able to change sinners, not only to turn them from their sin, but to restore them to His design and purposes. Those who dismiss this as reparative therapy simply have a problem with the Christian gospel at its core. If that's what we're calling reparative therapy, then I need reparative therapy. I need to be repaired by the grace of God. We all do. Number 10. For a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction to walk in repentance, does that mean that he or she will eventually stop being attracted to the same sex? Not necessarily in this life. We would hope that this temptation would be lifted, but we are not guaranteed that it will be. What needs to be remembered is that experiencing attraction to the same sex is not itself sinful. It is an expression of a broken sexuality, but I also express my broken sexuality when I'm attracted to women other than the wife the Lord has given me. This kind of attraction would not exist in an unfallen world but neither would any temptation to sin. But we must distinguish the presence of weakness and temptation and the embrace of temptation in sin. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. So temptation from the devil, the world, and our own fallen flesh is not itself sin. When we give in to temptation in the lust of our hearts or the action of our bodies, that is when we sin. Experiencing temptation to pursue what is contrary to the Lord's will characterizes our earthly life. You guys know this is true, right? (laughs) We will not be rid of it until we enter glory, but the power of the Spirit is present to help us fight it. Here's Some helpful thoughts from Russell Moore in his excellent book, Tempted and Tried. He writes, The world around you often defines you in terms of what you want. The advertising world sees you as a consumer, defined by your buying power and product preferences. Beyond that, other forces would seek to define you by your appetites themselves. If you want to drink, you're a drunk. If you want to have sex, then that's your need, and you must be true to yourself, and so it goes. But you don't live by bread alone. You are not what you want. Sometimes we actually empower Satan by the way we speak of Christian conversion. We highlight the testimony of the ex-alcoholic who says, Since I met Jesus, I've never wanted another drink. Now that happens sometimes. We should give thanks for God's power here, but this liberation is no more miraculous, indeed in some ways less so, than the testimony of the repentant drunk who says, every time I hear a clink of ice in a glass, I tremble with desire. But God is faithful in keeping me sober. The girl with same-sex desire might conclude she is doomed to be a lesbian because she isn't drawn to boys and still fights her attraction to girls family members who have to cut up their credit cards to keep from spending every paycheck on what they see advertised may conclude they're just not spiritual enough to follow Christ because they still war against their wants. Nonsense. You are not what you want. You are who you are. 
And that is defined by the Word of God. It might be that God frees your appetite from whatever it's drawn toward, but usually instead He enables you to fight it. This is not pray away the gay as it has been put in cultural memes. This is not easy. There are no quick fixes. Our sin is not simple. After all, it required the destruction of God's Son. Number 11, what would you say to me if I experienced attraction to the same sex? First, I would say that you are God's wonderful creation and are made in His beautiful image. I'm sorry for the suffering and the struggle that you may have experienced in your life, the confusion and the loneliness. This is a fallen world, and we feel it. We feel it from within, and we feel it from without. Thank you for being willing to recognize your experience and to engage it honestly. But here's what it comes down to. Do you trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the claims of Christ and the provision that He has made in His life and death and resurrection? Do you know His forgiveness and His love? And if you have, if you've come to know Him as Lord, do you trust Him when He calls you to a life of obedience that is difficult, that comes at personal cost, that feels contrary to your natural inclinations? If, if He provides a path for you to walk, will you take the first step forward? Life is very short. Eternity is very long. There's coming a new heaven and a new earth in which all will be put right and we will live in the joy of it for endless years. Today is the vapor. When we've come to know Jesus, it is worth it to live for Him these short, difficult days. Your reward in heaven will be great. But don't shortcut the process of repentance. Allow the Lord to lovingly address your sin and temptation and their causes to care for you with the means of grace. Embrace the body of Christ as the community for change. Number 12, what would you say to me if I found out my son or daughter is gay? Well, if you are a parent, don't take this personally. Don't become offended that your perfect son or daughter has an issue that you don't want to deal with. Don't react out of your personal embarrassment. And don't become morbidly introspective about your parenting and whether or not you were good enough as a father or mother. Rather, posture yourself to speak the truth in love. And to demonstrate that love in tangible and compassionate ways. Consider your own sin and struggles. The time that you have been on the opposite side of what God's purposes demand. 
leverage the fruit of the Spirit in this moment, such as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And anyone who knows this person, surround them with the love and fellowship of the body of Christ. One of the most painful things someone tempted to homosexuality experiences is loneliness. And the last place that they should find this is in the Christian church. What much more could be said about both of these questions, but we need to move on. But there are many resources available. I've listed some of them in the back of your notes for you guys to check out. Number 13, this is me. Are you asking me to deny who I am? Well, yes. If you are defining who you are apart from Christ and His Word, But again, that's not unique to homosexuality. This is the case for all of us. In Philippians 3, Paul lists all his former identities and boasts, but then he says he left them behind on the rubbish heap in order that he might gain Christ. Jesus invites us to deny ourselves. This is not easy. There is a cross to bear, and not a cross in the sense of nice Christian jewelry but the cross as a torture instrument for reviled criminals. Jesus invites us to join Him on the death march. We die in Him, and we live in Him. All of us have a me that resists this. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 to throw that me on the altar as a living sacrifice. This is the paradoxical Christian message. It is foreign to the world whose only value is being true to yourself. The world defines honesty and courage as giving in to your impulses. They they say that to deny ourselves these things is to be self-deceived. What nonsense. Honesty and courage are not found in self-indulgence but in self sacrifice so sell all you have and buy the treasure hidden in the field we now transition to look at the topic of same-sex marriage and if you notice in your notes I put the word marriage in the phrase same-sex marriage in scare quotes and this is because same-sex marriage is an oxymoron it is not marriage The terms are mutually exclusive, and if we capitulate on the language, we lose the debate at the beginning. And we'll see this as we look at our next question. Number 14, why deny to homosexuals the right to get married? Isn't that discrimination? Well, this way of framing the question treats those of us defending marriage as if we are on the offensive as if we are arguing for why certain people should be excluded and that same-sex couples are on the defensive. But this is not the situation at all. It is those who are advocating that marriage be redefined who are on the offensive. This is all about definitions. To marry is not an intransitive verb without a direct object. And if you change the direct object of the verb, you change the meaning of the verb. For example, every adult man labeled gay or straight by the culture under normal circumstances has the right to get married. But to get married to whom? Well, to get married to 
a woman because that is what the verb means. If you replace that direct object so that the sentence refers to a man marrying a man, what you have done is not just change out the nouns, but redefine the verb. We are not denying anyone the right to get married. The question is, what does marriage mean? And that is being redefined. So the burden of proof is not on marriage advocates to give a good reason why we should discriminate against certain people. The burden of proof is on those who are arguing that this historic and important institution should be redefined. We are not discriminating against gay marriage any more than we are discriminating against the right of circles to be triangles. Number 15, but shouldn't any individuals who love each other have a right to get married? But surely this is overstated because on this argument, polygamists and those in incestuous relationships or even pederasts should be allowed to get married if they are individuals who love each other. But then it is replied, but, but that's not marriage. It's not marriage if there are three people, exactly. And it's not marriage if there are two men or two women. It's all about how marriage is defined. And if we can change the definition of marriage with respect to gender and sexuality, then why can't we change the definition of marriage with respect to number? What's so sacred about the number two? Now, please note this. We are not comparing gay couples to polygamists. We are comparing the arguments for gay marriage with the arguments for polygamous marriage, which, by the way, really do exist. I could give you many citations for that if we had time. This is not what's called the slippery slope fallacy, saying that one thing will lead to another. Although, make no mistake, one thing will lead to another. Rather, if you pay attention to argument forms, this is an argument in the form of what's called a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, one cannot consistently support gay marriage and oppose polygamy or other revisions of marriage. One cannot argue for marriage being redefined and when those who come wanting marriage to include their sister, their uncle, and their dog all of a sudden shut off the moral revolution. Why all the hate? Number 16, if homosexuality is wrong, even if homosexuality is wrong from a Christian viewpoint, in a pluralistic society, why should we say they can't get married? Well, the quick answer to this is that we are not saying that anyone in particular can't get married. The question is, what is marriage? If marriage is something, if it is already a defined and historic institution and ultimately established and designed by God Himself, then we cannot support that institution being redefined to become something it never was or to be contrary to God's revealed will. Well, then it might be responded in number 17, how can you impose your religious views on others? Well, not every argument in favor of marriage as traditionally defined is an explicitly religious argument. For example, I've listed in your notes a book titled What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense, written by a group of Harvard Law professors. And they present what is called a natural law argument for marriage. They don't appeal to any particular religious institution or text, but to common principles held to be true by society and our governmental structure. 
But one way or another, everyone imposes their religious views on others in the political system. It's just a matter of which religious views. And you say, no, I don't. I don't believe in God, and I think he has no place in politics. But that itself is a religious position. It makes a truth claim. It declares one state of affairs to be true and other things to be false. In our political system, I am in a position to vote according to my conscience and according to my convictions about morality. In other words, according to my worldview. We all do this. Which means the Christian, when he enters the polls, enters with God's interests in mind. That's our responsibility. This is not anti-democratic. This is an expression of the design of our political system. In fact, John Adams wrote, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. The First Amendment is often cited as if it requires that so-called religious concerns have no place in politics. What the amendment actually says is Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, which means that Congress will not pass a law that favors a particular religious denomination or institution. And remember, this is a reference to Congress. The amendment is stating that there will be no Church of the United States that could potentially threaten state rights. It's a federalist principle. On the other hand, when the Constitution was ratified, nine of the 13 colonies had established state churches at the state level. So it is a misreading of the amendment to exclude any religious concerns from the political sphere. But in reality, it is same-sex marriage that does not recognize religious freedom. Chai Feldblum, President Obama's EEOC chief, has published a paper titled Moral Conflict and Liberty, Gay Rights and Religion, arguing that when so-called sexual liberty conflicts with religious li liberty, it is a zero-sum game. In other words, that sexual liberty should trump religious liberty. And we see this in action. In New Mexico, a photographer was fined over $6,000 for refusing to photograph a same-sex commitment ceremony. A ministry in New Jersey lost its tax-exempt status for denying a lesbian couple to use its facility for their wedding. Will Christian colleges be required to offer married student housing to gay couples? Will religiously affiliated adoption agencies be allowed to refuse adoption to so-called same-sex parents? Well, Mrs. Feldblum has answered this question for us. And we should remember that it's not just one particular religion, one small sect that opposes the redefinition of marriage. It's not only evangelical Christians, but also Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, let's not forget, Muslims. Although you'll never see a Muslim leader drilled by Piers Morgan on national television as to why he holds such hateful beliefs. Number 18. What difference does it make what two people do in their bedroom? Well, this question assumes that the definition of marriage is a private matter. 
It's not merely private to a couple who wants to express a commitment. The very reason that they want their relationship to be, ma- be labeled marriage is because they want it to be recognized publicly with real-world consequences. It is not private when it comes to the children who will grow up without a mother or father or to the school administrators, social workers, and pastors, and so on, who will be forced to recognize it, or to the married couples who will find themselves in an institution that has been redefined to be something it never was. And it is not private to the Lord who designed marriage and who supplied its definition for all humanity. So-called same-sex marriage is either right or wrong, but it is not private. It's not just about what people do in their bedrooms. It's about whether or not you will be forced to recognize and support it. Well, we are already past time, so got two more questions listed in your notes, and I don't want to try to give them quick answers. So if, if those questions interest you, you're more than welcome to come talk to me afterward. But uh, what, we have, what we've done this morning is is see the intersection between the Christian worldview and the issues faced in our culture today, particularly in this cultural conversation about homosexuality. And this is why we do this. We are concerned about God's truth. And we are concerned about God's gospel. We want to see it have its redemptive effect in the lives of those we come into contact with. And so when that gospel is denied or questioned or opposed in the cultural conversation, we need to be those who are are ready to defend it, to share it without embarrassment, and to be committed to God's work and God's truth. So that's, that's why these issues are important. I know some of them, more than others, may interest you or you follow, but, but this is about the Lord and what he has revealed. So let's, let's close in prayer. Well, thank you that we are not in a position of trying to discover what you are like or to figure out what's right or wrong and who is God and how would he have me live. Lord, Lord you have clearly revealed all of these things to us. And most importantly, you have shown us yourself. Lord, you are on display in the pages of Scripture and in our lives. Lord, thank you for the access to you that we have through the gospel. Lord, thank you that you have an open ear toward us and our prayers. And so, Lord, we we pray for the day in which we live. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful as a church Lord, we pray that we would not be half-hearted in our convictions and our commitments to truth and our desire to stand for what you have spoken and to see it accomplished in people's lives. Remind us why this matters and give us strength and power from your Holy Spirit to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.